Thank you very much. Good morning. Great to be here. Great to see you. It feels like I haven't really been here for, for a while, because I haven't. That's why it feels like it. Um, yeah, as Francis said, we're going to be speaking on Psalm 122, so do find that in your Bible. Uh, another one of these Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms of Ascent are songs which were designed to be sung by the Israelites, by God's people, as they uh, marched up the hill, walked up the hill towards Jerusalem to worship. And uh, Jerusalem is the center of worship in that nation. It's really, really important. It's where great worship festivals and feasts would be held and people would pack into the city from all over Israel. It's where the tabernacle is. The tabernacle is really important and where the, the future temple would be built not very long after this was written, which includes the Holy of Holies, which is where the very presence of God dwelt. Jerusalem is where the Israelites would encounter and be reminded of the, the foundational realities of their relationship with God, their history. They'd be reminded of what God has done in their history. They'd be reminded when they see the sacrificial rituals and, and they'd hear the teaching, they'd be reminded about the forgiveness of God for them and, 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 and what he's done and how he brought them out of Egypt. They'd be reminded of their redemption and the unmerited favor of God upon them. Jerusalem is the center of worship. It's the dwelling place of God and it's vitally important in the life of that nation. And we see some of that reflected in this psalm. So we're going to read Psalm 122, which says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. And so I'm going to make a couple of observations from this psalm about worship itself. Um, just to say up front, when I talk about worship today, I'm talking about a lot more than singing. I'm sure we all understand that. It's really about everything. It's about our whole lives, including specific acts of worship, such as we're here today to do, gathering to worship God. But it's really about our whole lives and worshiping with our whole lives. But this song that I've just read is being sung on the way to take part in an act of worship. And so I think it has a couple of things to tell us about worship itself. And then we're going to look at a couple of things which we can see here that result from a life of worship. Okay, so two observations about worship, two things that result from worship. So first observation, as we look at the first lines and we see this sense of delight in this psalm, as David writes here, is that worship is an expression of deep joy. Worship is an expression of deep joy. David says, I rejoiced. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. When they told me, when they said, we're going to the house of the Lord, I rejoiced. You know, this isn't a burdensome pilgrimage for him, this journey to Jerusalem. He's not kind of thinking, oh, you know, we've got to go to Jerusalem again. So boring there, there's nothing to do. What? No, 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 there's, there's deep joy running through this. David is rejoicing in the thought of approaching Jerusalem. The thought of gathering with God's people for this act of worship, there's a sense of excitement in here. Now, we went on holiday a couple of weeks ago to France, 
and uh, we left at about 10 in the morning. And uh, while Suzanne and I were rushing around trying to get everything packed, get the car packed, make sure the house is secure, you know, the kind of things you do, make sure the freezer is shut and all that sort of thing, the kids are overflowing with excitement. You know, and it's kind of, we didn't have to get them out of bed that day. It was like, it was like when are we going? Is it time to go yet? How long is it going to take to get there? I can't believe we're going. We're going to France today. We're going on holiday. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be so good. There's so much to do there. And of course, the question comes after five minutes in the car. Are we nearly there? The three of them now think this is tremendously funny. It's a bit of a joke for them. They chorus together, are we nearly there yet? But it's excitement. And you can imagine David like that, like an excited child, overflowing with excitement, overflowing with anticipation at where they're going and what they're going to do there. We are going. You can imagine him speaking to his family, kids, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to worship God together in Jerusalem. It's not, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem again. No, he says, our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. It's like, I can't believe it. We're here. We are here where God dwells. We get to be here. We get to put our feet in this place. How could that be? How could it be? And there's just a sense of wonder and excitement and deep Deep joy. Worship is an expression. It's a result of deep joy. Now, where does this joy come from? Well, it's the same for David as it is for us. Because David knows how much he and the Israelites get it wrong and and mess things up and live in ways that are offensive to God, and yet here we are. We get to stand in the gates of Jerusalem. We get to stand in the presence of God, a forgiven people. The joy of worship for David just as it is or just as it should be for us, is the recognition of grace. The grace of God, the lavish, abundant, wonderful grace of God. The shocking reality that people like you and me would be accepted into the presence of God for eternity. And it is shocking. It is outrageous. And we so easily lose sight of it. I was at New Day earlier in August, uh, youth festival, we took a lot of young people up there, and there's one evening, a really well-known speaker called Francis Chan was speaking on the holiness of God, and you should listen to it, Uh, seriously, go on the New Day website, newdaygeneration.org, I think, go and download it, you should listen to it, it was one of those moments of getting a glimpse of God, just a precious, holy moment, but not, not kind of God as our buddy, God in his holiness, God in his purity, and just how terrifying he is. For creatures like you and me, he is terrifying. And in his presence, we should be dead. You see Isaiah in the temple, and he sees this vision of, the, of, of the God on his throne, and he's terrified. Isaiah's a righteous man, he's terrified. He's, he's taken apart, he's ruined. Or John, in the book of Revelation, sees the risen Jesus in all his glory, and it says he falls at his feet as though dead. The holiness of God. And it was, it was one of those moments, a glimpse of the holiness, the purity, the glory of God. And all I could think in that moment, in this big blue tent with 7,000 people that was very, very quiet indeed, is how can it be that you would let a creature like me be in your presence and live? That, that's all I could think. It is shocking. How would you tolerate me? What's more shocking is that he doesn't just tolerate us. He invites us. 
We're invited to approach the throne of grace with confidence. How, how can it be? You can see where the hymn writer gets it from. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I get to be in the presence of God. A holy God. I get to approach the throne of grace boldly, accepted, loved, forgiven. You know, we often talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts. Kind of that's a phrase that's quite often used. I was thinking about this. You know, I didn't invite Jesus into my heart. I couldn't cope with Jesus. He came for me. He came for me. I just responded in the only way I really could when faced in that moment with myself and seeing the the rottenness and the filth that lay within and at the same time seeing the pure, beautiful love of God and how that was extended towards me. Just pure grace. You know, I was well on the way to living a life of complete self-centeredness, total, utter self-centeredness that would find its culmination and its ultimate fulfillment in hell. That's where I was heading. That was, my, that was my predicament. I was in deep trouble and I didn't even know it. But he intervened. He came for me. And so because of that, I can say through no doing of my own, I am redeemed. I have been redeemed. I've been set free. I've been rescued. I've been saved. I've been set free to worship him. I have a new identity. I'm a new creation. I've changed direction. I was heading for destruction. Now I'm heading for glory. And even in this fallen world that we live in, I can genuinely know joy in all circumstances. I can wake up every morning and know the joy of the Lord and know I am still redeemed. It's still true today. I am redeemed. When I wake up in the morning, something I quite like to do is is just get up and straight away make the bed and sit down on the bed and just remind myself of who I am. To let the first thoughts of the day be about my identity in Christ. I'm a child of God. I've been adopted into your family. I'm a co-heir with Christ. How can that be? I was lost, now I'm found. I was, I was blind, now I see you, Jesus. You purchased me at such a great cost. You put such value on me. I was going one way, but you, you turned me around. I'm free, you've set me free to follow you. You've set me free from slavery to sin. My identity now is that I'm a child of God and that I have been redeemed. It was George Muller who said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. It's about recognizing and reminding ourselves of what he has done and how that has changed you until you get that breakthrough of joy, until you find your soul happy in the Lord. And it's the joy of the recognition of grace that leads to worship. It's that deep-seated joy of grace, the grace of God, which means a follower of Jesus can say, even in the most terrible of circumstances, but I am redeemed. And so I will worship you. Even in these circumstances, I am redeemed. I will worship you, God. It's an overflowing joy that means we can say, along with David, I am standing, my feet are standing in the gates of Jerusalem. How could that be? It's amazing. Here's a question. Do you know that joy? Do you know that assurance? Do you live with that joy? Because the truth is, we often look for that joy in other places. We often foolishly think that we can find greater joy in the temporary pleasures of the created world rather than in the creator himself. 
rather than an in acceptance with Christ and the implications of that. What joy rules your heart? What are you pursuing in your life? Would you, would you rather be popular and fit in with the world? Would you, would you rather have an easy life? Is it comfort that you pursue in your life? It's all about being comfortable. Would you rather have the admiration of others? You know, we're so easily deceived. We're so easily deceived into pursuing these temporary things. There's a really well-known C.S. Lewis quote which says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What are you pursuing in your life? What drives you? Is your life a life of worship of God, propelled by the joy of knowing God's grace, or are you far too easily pleased? Do you settle for second, not even second best? Pursuing, focusing on the pursuit of temporary, fleeting, and ultimately empty pleasures. Because it is a terrible thing, it's a tragic thing, when we get used to the grace of God. When we get blasé about it. Because when we do that, we're effectively saying, I deserve acceptance with God. And that's a dangerous place to be. That makes a mockery of Jesus' sacrifice. Joy that leads to worship comes from recognizing the shocking, outrageous grace of God. So first observation, worship is an expression of deep joy. Second observation, worship is an obligation. Now that sounds strange, because it almost sounds at odds with the first point. Because in our ears, in our understanding, obligation, duty, don't tend to have an awful lot to do with joy and, and delight. Look at what it says in verse 3 to 4. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. A statute is a law. It's a decree. The call to worship God, the obligation to worship God above all else, was, is the foundation of the, New Te- of the Old Testament law and was reiterated and repeated in the New Testament. Now that causes a problem for some people. This idea that God commands his own praise. That God exalts himself. For some, that makes God sound like a bit of an egomaniac. You know, maybe he's a bit insecure and he, he, he needs our adoration and our adulation. You know, maybe God craves your praise. That, that would be mistaken. Because actually, to have that view would be to put, it would be to project onto God the same motivations as you have. It would, it, it would to be to project your need for praise, which is born out of insecurity, onto a pure and holy, glorious God. It would be saying, God's got the same motivations as me. It's really saying, God's just like me. He's not. He's really not. He is glorious. He's holy. He's powerful. He's awesome. He's majestic. He's pure. He's not like you. A line that John Piper often uses is that God is most glorified in you 
when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Because actually he is where we find ultimate fulfillment and happiness and peace and satisfaction that we so crave. He is where we find it. And if God's glory is the most satisfying gift that he could possibly give us, then the command to praise him is the most loving thing he could possibly do. Psalm 16 says, You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act because he's exalting for us the only thing that can satisfy us completely and for eternity. He doesn't crave your adoration and your adulation. God doesn't need your praise. He offers it to you as your greatest pleasure in life as your greatest fulfillment in life. Humans are created to worship God. Worship is first of all an identity before it's an activity. It's, It's who you are before it's something that we do. It's in your DNA. You will worship. You will worship God or you will worship something else. You will worship the creator or you will worship creation, but something owns your heart. Your heart is directed and taken by something. And so as well as worship being an expression of deep joy, we very often have to choose to give our worship to God in obedience to his command, knowing he commands it because it's what is best for us. But we don't just worship when we feel like it. I think we probably would never worship. We don't just worship when we feel like it. We live in an age where feelings are so important. Feeling is king. Feeling something is the most important thing experience has become the marker of authenticity. And so often people will wait for the feeling to come. Then I'll worship. Or, or people might say, I'm not feeling close to God. I, I don't, you know, I'm not really feeling that sense of joy, so it would be hypocritical for me to go to worship on Sunday. It's wrong. It's a deception. That's a lie. Don't, don't have it. Don't fall for it. Now, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm certainly not dismissing the importance of experiencing and encountering God. We need that. We need to experience God. We need to encounter him. But you can choose to worship God with your life regardless of feelings because of what is true. Because the starting point is to recognize this is who God is. This is who I am. Creator, created. Holy, pure, powerful, majestic, fallen and weak. And yet I get to be in his presence because he gave his life for me. And so I am going to worship him. Because what is true about God and about you and about what he has done, that doesn't change whether you're feeling it or not. How you're feeling about something doesn't change the truth of something. And so I will worship him, whether, whether I feel it or not. Sometimes we need to act and let our feelings catch up, not the other way around. And so we obey the command to worship God. In fact, the command, the decree to worship him is the most loving thing he could possibly do for you. The worship of God should be the thing that shapes and directs everything we do. Everything we do, everything we are in our lives. Worship is saying everything belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. Everything I have, everything I am, the breath in my lungs is from him. He sustains me. And so I want my life to be for him. The sight in my eyes is from him, and so I want to submit what I look at to him. My words, my emotions, my thoughts, they're from him. They're for him, and so I want to worship him with them. 
My, my family, my money, my house, my car, my job, it all belongs to him. It is from him. It is for him. Nothing belongs to me. It all belongs to God. That is worship. I was given life to live for his glory and to find my complete satisfaction in him. And that is what he decrees. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet, so often we do. Eugene Peterson writes this. John Calvin saw the human heart as a relentlessly efficient factory for producing idols. People want things to work better. They want a life that's more interesting. They want help through difficult times. They want meaning and significance in their ventures. They want God in a way, but certainly not a jealous God. Not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mostly, they want their own way. They want to stay in control but have ancillary divine assistance for the hard parts. Ooh, I find that quite convicting. I don't know about you. Does that describe you? Do you pursue your own way? Do you seek to retain control? Do you pursue things like comfort, pleasure, status, acceptance above everything else, with the worship of God really driven to the margins of your life? Because it's not really what, what drives you. It's not really what drives your heart. It's not really what shapes you and what shapes your words and your thoughts and your actions. And you find yourself pursuing this endless list of God replacements. Rubbish God replacements. Temporary, fleeting satisfactions that we pursue, forgetting the glory of our identity in Christ and only coming to God when things get hard. You see, that's not worship. That's idolatry. What does your life show? What does it demonstrate? What does it reflect? Is your life an expression of your identity as a worshipper and of the call to worship God above everything else? Above everything else. So worship is an expression of deep joy and worship is also an obligation. Now let's have a look at verses six to nine to to find two things that result from this life of worship. David says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. One thing that we see here is that worship, genuine worship results in genuine love for one another. May those who love Jerusalem Be secure. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will say, peace be within you. David here shows a deep concern. He shows a deep love for the people of God. Because the love of God in our lives will always produce love for others. Where where lives are focused on the worship of God, it will always result in loving community. This is what I found here in this church. When I first came, when I first set foot in this church, down the road at Lady, where Lady Vernie's school used to be. That's what I found. That's what I saw. Just community. And I wanted to be with these people. There was something so attractive about this. I wanted to be with these people. Even before becoming a Christian, I remember when I'd be in places where Christians were gathered, there was something about the atmosphere that was so attractive. I didn't know what it was, but it was community. It was love. Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Loving one another is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. It's a result of worshipping God. 
And if, like me at times, if you find you sometimes have a lack of love for others, the problem's not so much to do with your love of others, it's more to do with a lack of love for God. Ultimately, the problem of that boils down to the worship of self rather than the worship of God. Because when I worship me, instead of worshiping God, that's going to make having genuine love and genuine concern for others really difficult. Because if I make a move towards you, if I seek to build relationship with you, it's not for the love of you, it's for the love of me. It's about what I can get out of the friendship. Maybe you have something that you can offer me that's going to benefit me, and then if you don't, well, I'm out of here. I'm not really interested. Now, it's only when my heart is filled with the love of God and my life is driven by the worship of God that I will genuinely care about you and your families and how you're doing, how your walk with God is going, even if you have nothing to offer me. Do you love God's people? I mean, do you really love God's people? Do you, do you seek to encourage others? Do you seek to bear the burdens of, of others and to serve others patiently and kindly and lovingly and to meet the needs of others even when they can't meet yours? Or does your life revolve around you and your needs? So the first thing is worship results. Genuine worship results in genuine love for one another. Second thing that we see here is that a life of worship results in a deep concern for the work of God, for the mission of God. David prays for the peace and security of Jerusalem and for the house of the Lord our God. That word peace, shalom in the Hebrew, that means an awful lot more than just the absence of conflict. It's about wholeness. It's about the completion of God's will. It's about things being the way they were meant to be in the beginning, the way they were created to be. Restored, shalom, restored in the earth. It's about everything being okay, everything is right, and knowing that because God is with us and God is over us and God is over all. Shalom, restored. David cares deeply about Jerusalem and about its peace and its security because in this moment of history, when this psalm is written, about 1000 BC, this is where God dwells. Jerusalem is where God dwells. That is where God dwells and does his work. But we know it's always part of a bigger plan, a far bigger plan of salvation. It was always God's intention for all nations to be blessed through Israel. Go right back to Genesis 12 and God speaks to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. It was always God's intention for that to happen, for, for, the, for the world to be blessed through what would come out of Israel, for shalom to be restored to creation. That is the work of God. That's the mission of God. And if my heart is filled with the love of God and driven by the worship of God, then I will care deeply about the work of God and the people of God and the kingdom of God. And to translate that into our context, I'd ask this question. Does the worship of God place in your heart a deep concern for the church of Jesus Christ? Because it's his church. Jesus is building his church. Do you care for the church? And for the unity and the peace of the church, for the work and the mission of the church? Do you pray for the leaders of the church? Do you pray for one another in the church? Investing your time and your energy and your money so that God's work here in High Wycombe grows and thrives. And I know the answer for so many here is yes. Yes, absolutely. But let us examine our hearts. Because we live in a consumer age. And that consumerism 
we find it so easy to indulge in it, and it can so easily creep into the church in some subtle ways and some not-so-subtle ways. But when it starts being more about your preferences, I like it when this person is preaching or when this person's leading worship, but I probably won't come next week because it's somebody else. Or maybe you find yourself moaning a lot (laughs) about the church. Or why can't this church be more like that church? Or maybe it's, I just, I'm just not finding church very fulfilling at the moment. Do you know something? The church doesn't exist for our fulfillment. It exists for the mission of God. And being here together on a Sunday morning and coming to midweek things, midweek small groups, is absolutely essential in the life of a Christian. But one thing it will not do, it will not satisfy your hunger for God. You will not find fulfillment there. It will deepen it. It will deepen it. And so worship overflows from the hour and a half on a Sunday and out into the rest of the week. I need to be here with you. I need this. Because for me, it's like it points me. Being here with you points me to true north again. It gets me back on track. It gets my vision in the right place and propels me out into the rest of the week. When I feel kind of drifty when I've not been at church... So this August, I've had three weeks not being at church, and I feel a bit adrift. I feel a bit disorientated, and it's so good to be back. It's so good to be with you. I don't miss. I never miss church lightly. And it's not just because I work for the church. I never have. Even before I work for the church, I will not miss church lightly because it is so important to me. It's so important to be with you. But this is not where I will find the fulfillment and the satisfaction of my hunger for God. It just whets my appetite for more. And gets me on track and propels me into the rest of the week. Worship overflows. A consumer goes into a shop looking for a product. So I might go to Next looking for a pair of jeans. But if if Next doesn't have what I'm looking for, I have no fundamental commitment to shopping in Next. I have no problem at all to go to another shop and look for, for a pair of jeans there. That's ultimately what consumer Christianity leads to in the church. This isn't meeting my needs. I'm going somewhere else. Consumer Christianity is driven by the worship of self. It's about what I need right now. It's about what makes me feel good. It's about what I want, what pleases me, rather than a sense of calling to the people of God and to the work of God. Do you have a sense of calling about this church? That this is where God has placed you while you're here, as long as you live in High Wycombe and Hazelmere, that this is where God has placed you, and it's for a purpose. You're not here by accident. Do you have that sense of calling? Because you need to have that, either here or somewhere else. But you need that sense of calling, that this is where I'm supposed to be. Because otherwise, when problems hit, you'll be out of here. And you'll be rootless and just wandering around. The call of God and the worship of God lead us to want to be part of the work of God, to be passionate about the work of God. And it shapes our choices in life. Where we live, it shapes where we live, where we feel called. It shapes how we use money. It shapes how we use time. Is the work of God something you would give your life for? I love this church. I love the work of God here because I love the God of this work. He's amazing. Up that picture. This is a, a picture of a mountainside in South Dakota where you can see at the top a face has been carved, and it's the face of a Native American warrior called Crazy Horse. And um, the carving's nowhere near finished. It was started back in 1948, 
and the intention is for it to be the full figure of the warrior sitting on a galloping horse. This is something of a scale which is unimaginable. It's just, it would be the largest sculpture in the world by far. And although the body and the horse have barely been started and certainly not completed, you can kind of get an impression of how impressive this would be in the vastness of the scale by looking at the head. And that's a picture of the church. Because the church is incomplete. The church is still being carved out, still being formed. The parts which have been chiseled out, well, they're a bit rough. They're a bit shapeless, they're a bit messy. But the head, the head of the church, Jesus, well, he's magnificent. He's perfect, he's beautiful, he's complete. When we fix our eyes on the head, when we focus our worship, the worship of our lives on Jesus, then we will stop focusing on the imperfections of the body. And we will be filled with hope that one day this body will be completed. The present beauty and excellence of the head provides a guarantee of the future excellence and beauty of the body, the church, the radiant bride of Christ. Be careful how you speak about the church of Jesus Christ. It's his, he loves it. He's forming it, he's building it. I'm sure the band could come back up now. The worship is an expression of deep joy, and it's also an obligation. And worship, genuine worship, results in love for one another and for the work of God in the church. And in the time of this psalm, it was all centered on Jerusalem and the tabernacle, the place of sacrifice and ritual, and the future temple, the dwelling place of God. But here's the amazing thing. Here's the wonderful thing. There's no longer any need for the tabernacle because one came who made the ultimate sacrifice that was good enough for all time, for all humanity. As Jesus was nailed to that cross, it is finished, he said. No more sacrifice is needed. He has done it. He's done everything that needs to be done for our forgiveness. Have you placed your trust fully in him? Do you pursue him and his grace in your life? Is your life driven by the worship of him? We no longer need the temple because we are the temple of God. God has chosen to dwell in us and where the people of God go, that's where God goes. That's where the presence of God goes, where you go, where I go, the presence of God goes. We are the temple of God. So no tabernacle, no temple, but we are all still pilgrims. We're still on a pilgrimage. We're still on this journey, this journey through life. But the amazing thing is, because of what Jesus has done, we get to march up the hill towards a new Jerusalem towards the new heavens and the new earth, a new creation, towards this place of shalom restored. And we get to march together. We get to be with one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on, joyfully singing songs of worship as we go. We get to say, I am redeemed. I have been redeemed. I've been set free. I've been rescued. My feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. And I get to live in the house of the Lord forever, forever. Forever and ever and ever, for eternity, loved, accepted, whole, shalom, restored. That is why we worship. That is why we worship. So let's worship him.